This is a Radical Exchange production. Hello and welcome to Radical Exchanges. This conversation with Joe Goldie focuses on infrastructure, specifically the special role that infrastructure plays in economies and the role that it has played in history. In addition to being a senior fellow of Radical Exchange Foundation, Joe is a scholar of the history of Britain and its empire, who is especially involved in questions of state expansion, the contestation of property under capitalism, and how state and property concepts are recorded in the landscape of the built environment. These themes informed her first book, Roads to Power, which examined Britain's interkingdom highway and its users from 1740 to 1848. They also inform her current research into rent disputes and land reform for her next monograph, The Long Land War, which profiles three moments in the history of property, the Irish Land Court of 1881 and its invention of rent control, the ideology of squatting in post-1940 Britain, and the creation of the participatory map for contesting legal boundaries in Britain and India in the 1970s and 80s. Joe is also a professor of history at SMU, and it was a pleasure to speak with her. My name is Matt Pruitt, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, it's so nice to be here with you, Matt. So I'm thinking that we can begin this conversation with perhaps a little bit of exploration into your academic project, which we might kick off with the question of how is the internet like the sidewalk? That is my favorite question, Matt. The internet is so like the sidewalk. It's really useful to ask how the internet is like the sidewalk. So let's think about the sidewalk for a moment. The sidewalk is a beautiful thing. It connects all of our houses. We use it every day to go to the playground, to go to the school, think about the roads and the highways that connect us. But let's just think about the sidewalk for a moment. Nobody is anti-sidewalk. You can talk to your friendly anarchist down the street who wants nothing to do with government and who wants to live off of dumpster diving, and they are not anti-sidewalk. You can talk to your libertarian friend who wants to smash the state and wants no post office and no taxes. And typically, they're not anti-sidewalk either. So what's it about the sidewalk that's okay? Well, we have agreements around the sidewalk. Your sidewalk gets messed up. You're supposed to repair it. There are laws about who's supposed to repair it. There are standards. You can't just repair it with chewing gum and duct tape. You have to repair it with concrete. And we like our standards. Nobody really wages a creative war on the sidewalk. So those parameters are in place, and they've been in place in much of North America and Europe for about 200 years. They're so in place that we take them for granted. Meanwhile, we have proposals for how to use the internet and how we could regulate it to make it work more like a sidewalk, more like there are regulations, more like anybody is free to use it, anybody can come and go, and there would be regulations to keep it open and free and usable and cheap. There are regulations around that that often go by the name of net neutrality, and those are highly controversial. But when those come up, your libertarian friend might condemn it as socialism. So I like to go back to the sidewalk metaphor in order to understand how is it that we got some things in common. The sidewalk is definitely not socialism. Like any capitalist country you can think of, they've got sidewalks. We're happy with the sidewalk. So why did the sidewalk work out so well? And what can we learn about the way the sidewalk got started that would help us to understand where the conversation about the internet might go? 
So that's my thing. I think about parallels in history, and I think about when the sidewalk was new, what happened. And then I think about other iterations of that, when the interstate highway was new, when the railroad was new, when early forms of peer-to-peer map making and early pre-internet structures were new. What did they look like? And I think about the debates that came up when those happened that allowed us to get beautiful things like the sidewalk. What strikes me as distinctive about a sidewalk is that it's not owned by anybody in particular, right? And it's governed through politics as opposed to through economics. You know, if we draw a distinction between a sidewalk and like a private parcel, because a private parcel is owned by somebody in particular, and it's governed more through economics than through politics. Does that map onto your way of understanding the distinction? Yeah, absolutely. If, you know, if I were an economist, I would use a fancy word for this. And that word is externality. And externality is something that we decided as a culture, and we're just going to share in common. David Graeber talks about how radical externalities are, that they are basically socialism. They are zones of socialism that we've decided to all share in common. And if you look at them, they're absolutely everywhere. So, you know, you can look at any banking corporation that's totally dedicated to the free market and to wealth and private property management, and there's a stapler on somebody's desk, and the vice president comes through and he needs a stapler. Does he pass over a dollar to use the stapler on the desk of the clerk? No, those staplers are in common for in the entire office building. Nobody even thinks about it. So the sidewalk is another externality like that. We don't see them because we don't think about it. We don't have conversations about what we hold in common. We just do it. And that's why going back in history and thinking about when sidewalks were new, when we started sharing staplers... Questions like this, when we stopped and started sharing resources together, that can really open up the question. So we haven't had the same externalities all along. Those externalities have come and gone. There are moments when we decide we want more stuff in common and we want less stuff in common. And it's not as simple as communism and capitalism. In fact, the origin of the sidewalk is with the birth of capitalism. Tell me about that. Okay, once upon a time, there was a man named Adam Smith. And in 1776, alongside an important revolution, Adam Smith publishes a book called The Wealth of Nations that sets forth an important vision of this new system called capitalism and how it might work. And one of the things that he notes in there is that there's been a lot of entrepreneurial activity with roads in Great Britain. New toll roads, improved roads are connecting towns and villages. And when the road comes in, it looks like a lot more trade is going to happen. But often more trade doesn't happen because the guy who built the road wants to get paid. It's called a toll road. And at the toll, there's a toll booth and there's a barrier and there's a troll, which is the guy in the barrier who's going to charge you money. You can't go through the barrier unless you pay the troll. So the toll roads are a kind of entrepreneurialism which chokes entrepreneurship. If you're a poor man with a wagon and you're going to sell apples in the village, if you can't afford to pay the troll, the toll on the road, then you're not going to get to the village. You're not going to get to the market. You're not going to make a buck. So it limits who's involved. And part of Adam Smith's genius is that he points to that and he starts railing against monopoly. Monopolies of this kind prohibit exchange and they strangle what he wants to believe is capitalism, which he wants to believe makes capital flow horizontally. So there's good capitalism where the capital flows horizontally and entrepreneurs get rewarded. And then there's bad capitalism where the capital only flows up and the rich get richer. Toll roads strangle capitalism 
But free roads and open sidewalks allow everybody to get to market. Hence the wealth of the nations. It's not just England that's going to get rich in this system. Adam Smith has an argument about how all of the poor folk in Wales and the poor folk in 18th century Scotland and the poor folk in 18th century Ireland are also going to get rich if you would just build roads to connect all of them, if you would just connect the entire country. I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's not really Adam Smith. That's his friends. But Adam Smith is from Scotland, and he has some friends who listen to him, and they start up a lobby in Parliament, which starts lobbying for roads. And hey, voila, Britain gets its first national road network, connecting London, Dublin, Edinburgh, and allowing the more rapid exchange of goods and letters, mail, newspapers between those former colonial capitals in a way that, you know, for contemporaries, that is the signature that capitalism works. You have an externality. We own it together. We maintain it together. And trade flows on it. So I think one counterpoint to this is that the nice thing about private property is that it creates incentives for its owners to invest in it. And so the worry that a lot of people have about supposing that we can accomplish all of this good with public infrastructure is that it won't be maintained or it won't be invested in. Why did that work adequately in Adam Smith's day, you know, is one way of asking the question or another way of asking the question is, do you have a way of thinking about what kinds of things belong in this infrastructure category and what kind of things, you know, are better off in private hands, you know, with, you know, so roads being an example of the kind of thing that shouldn't be in private hands. Maybe there are other things that should be in private hands or there's some like spectrum going on there. I mean, do you have any thoughts about classifying different kinds of things as infrastructure or not? Yeah, well, there's a way of thinking in which there are simple forms of infrastructure like sidewalks where it's really easy for the state to invest in them because the maintenance is never going to change. The technology is never going to change. Same old sidewalk. But then if something is really new, like the railroads, well, then, then we need entrepreneurial investment because we need to keep up with the latest innovation. So therefore, private investment. But that's actually, in my way of thinking, that doesn't hold up. If you read the arguments of 19th century people and you look at how the railway worked, there are nations that went with private railways and nations which said a railway is actually just like a sidewalk. And the nations that went with the sidewalk argument tended to have less redundancy, fewer crashes on the market, and to have railway systems that served centers of population and circulated people way before the nations that were connected by private railways. So the classic case of this is in the American West, where you have lots of railway startups getting started and collapsing. Richard White wrote a book about it called Railroaded, which is about the enormous waste of human labor and raw capital and energy that happens when you have the railway system totally run by private enterprise across the West, building railway systems that you don't need, and then many of them collapse. Economists like Schopenhauer will celebrate that as creative destruction. Yeah, it's true. Many of those railway lines are going to collapse but think about the technological innovation. Richard White looks at that and he says, technological innovation, that's not where the technological innovation is coming from. What the railways drive is a mass handover of capital to America's elite. If you want to look at what's actually happening, there's technological innovation in places like France and Belgium where the state owns the railways. 
you have plenty of opportunities for technological innovation in those places. But what you have in the United States is that to sponsor this culture of railways that are started and then collapsed, you have the United States basically giving free land grants to the railroad. And the free land grants aren't really free because those were confiscated from indigenous people. And the wars against the indigenous people required military expenditure, they required feeding soldiers, they required forts. All of that land had been seized on the promise of turning it over to small holders, so ordinary working people. But then it turns out that an enormous tract of that land is then handed over to the railroads as compensation for connecting railroads across the West. So it's capital turnover. And for a lot of observers in late 19th century America, this capital turnover starts to bother them because they look at the balance sheet and they say, this isn't about innovation. This is about seizing land. And it's making these wide open lands in the West of America super expensive. Land is getting sold back to ordinary middle-class settlers or ordinary farmers at an inflated price. Those farmers are moving in trying to be homesteaders Meanwhile, the Durants and the Vanderbilts and the other railway fortunes of the 19th century have made a killing receiving free land in return for putting down the railroad. The railroad line collapses. The railroad isn't serving the common good or the common flow of exchange as it was supposed to. And instead, capital's just getting consolidated in the hands of the elite. So to me, it seems like there's a sort of a special perversity in compensating the people who are taking risks on building railroads with land, because land is yet another asset that allows private owners to extract value from a network. But then there are other kinds of situations that I'd be curious to get your take on, like in the New York City subways, for example, and I'm sure you know more about this than I do, but my understanding is that the New York City subway system was initially built by a handful of different private companies, which went under at some point, and the system as a whole gradually passed into the possession of, I guess it's New York State. And then that kind of seems to have worked out, right? The, the New York City subway is the kind of infrastructure that throws off all kinds of value for everyone in proximity to it. And that worked out for the best. So how do you see the difference there? Well, the New York City subway, you know, the same thing happens in London and in a lot of major places. There are these private lines, eventually they collapse or they're nationalized at a certain point. Like when you go to war, they might be nationalized because there's, a, as with the quarantine, a momentary time when citizens are too busy doing other things to take the train or to take the bus to their normal job. So maintenance requires the state Maintenance requires a state. If you're going to have occasions like war or like a pandemic, if you think that might ever happen when your resource is going to be disrupted, then you really want the state to come in and take up maintenance. And maintenance works so long as you have a state and a population under the state who believe in infrastructure. And by believe in infrastructure, I mean, you know, going back to Adam Smith, we have to start thinking about Adam Smith's views of capitalism as a certain kind of capitalism that's supposed to work for democracy. It's launched in 1776. That's not a coincidence. Smith is curious about forms of human creation that work for the many, not for the few. And he doesn't think that free markets in general will do that. He thinks that it can only be supported when you have lowered transaction costs, which means not only dispensing with tolls and tariffs, but also dispensing with 
the little toll gatekeeper and the little entrepreneur who's getting in the way of the flow of information, which might be your intercom provider or your cell phone provider. You get rid of them by nationalizing them and collectivizing them. It's not socialism. It's actually at the heart of Adam Smith. I can't remember if we've talked before about this idea of increasing returns versus decreasing returns processes. I'm curious to get your thoughts on how that maps on here. So the basic idea is that if you think about, for example, a factory, if you crowd more workers into a factory, then you know each marginal worker that you add to the factory is producing less than the prior one because you know there's this crowding effect, right? By contrast, there are other kinds of productive processes that strengthen with scale as opposed to weakening with scale. These are basically processes that reinforce themselves. So the best example being like network effects. So if you have a social network or something like that, each additional person that you add to the social network makes the overall social network more valuable as opposed to less valuable. And to me, it seems like there's a really interesting parallel between that idea and the idea of, uh, and this question of like, what's infrastructure and what's not infrastructure, right? infrastructural things are things that strengthen the networks around them. Whereas these other kinds of, you know, decreasing returns processes are processes that tax the networks around them. That's right. So Keynes got this, right? So this is why Keynes invents the idea of the multiplier. The multiplier is an additional value, a mystical additional value that happens for every dollar government spends on certain activities. In Keynes's view, if the government buys a bunch of ice cream, there's no multiplier because you just eat the ice cream and it's gone. But if the government spends a lot of money on an interstate highway system, then all of a sudden it's way faster for a lot of people to get to work and people have opportunities to start a gas station at that intersection that wasn't there before. And there are more people passing through who need to buy ice cream. And so ice cream is bought and sold. And so more transactions are happening in general. People have more revenue in general and the government can raise taxes on them to pay for the maintenance of the infrastructure because everybody's earning so much. So that's called the multiplier. That's the whole theory about why interstate highway systems and subways are supposed to work. And, you know, I'm grateful to you for talking about the incentives of adding more participants, because part of the rationale of the generation in which Keynes is living, there's a body of thought about infrastructure that we've largely forgotten, which is associated with an often misunderstood character, the journalist turned political economy theorist turned critic of empire, Henry George, who was famous for losing mayoral race in New York City at the end of the 19th century. He's often chided by American historians, this foolish figure, this larger-than-life caricature who goes into politics and fails terribly. But that's not the end of the story. George goes on to have a speaking tour of the United Kingdom, of Scotland, England, and Ireland, and those events are extremely well attended. And they're intended by both leaders of popular movements, like labor movements, and the Irish movement for freedom and independence, home rule from Britain. And they seed a debate about what makes infrastructure stronger at a time that's absolutely crucial in British history because it's a moment when the working class have just gotten the right to vote much later than they have in America. You have all these working men who have been in the factory and George says to them, infrastructure is a system that pays out more the more people are added. So what we need is a tax system that taxes people who benefit from the social value added to being at a crossroads, that socially created value. 
It's not something that the owner of that gas station did to get rich or be creative. You had that place on the highway at the intersection, and more and more people are going through the highway because the highway was placed there by all of us. And it's all of us who are making that convenience store owner rich. So let's tax them and then redistribute their wealth by making the highway longer. And that will mean that more people are connected on the highway. We'll be adding more and more participants to this exchange. And the economy is going to get stronger as a result. So this line of thinking is, it's behind Keynes. Keynes, of course, is British, but gives us many of the ideas that were tried out in the New Deal. It gives us the recipe for the New Deal when the American government is spending lots of money reconstructing the whole of the American landscape, building roads, reworking forests, building high schools and post offices, really rebuilding infrastructure on every level. That's based on an economic set of ideas about what happens to the economy as you get more people involved and as the government takes up the cost of maintenance. I'm partly playing the devil's advocate here, but I think that people listening might think that private actors who are building these infrastructure-like goods, like railroad companies or social network companies or things like that, aren't they doing something good? Aren't they facilitating exactly the kind of increasing returns process that you're trying to encourage here? How do you respond to that line of thinking? Like, What's the problem with private actors who have some kind of ownership interest in these processes and are therefore incentivized to strengthen them and build them and so on? Well, you know, it's absolutely true. You know, in our lifetimes, we've seen the rise of these new kinds of infrastructures that essentially connect the world in ways that nobody dreamt of before. There was no Facebook when I was in high school. There were bulletin board systems. There was no Twitter. There were these electronic realms with no visual interface where you chatted. But if you really try to think as a historian and you think, where did those bulletin board systems come from? I mean, was Facebook inevitable once you had the bulletin board systems? Facebook and the bulletin board systems look pretty close. There were zones for people to get involved and share ideas. Facebook is a bit bigger than the biggest bulletin board systems, but that's not just Zuckerberg's fault, right? That's also about the increasing cost of personal computers and cell phones and points of innovation that are coming from, again, broadcast participation. Lots and lots of little mini innovators back when Apple was being made out of somebody's garage. And so then you start asking, okay, where did the bulletin board systems come back in the 1990s when having a personal computer was super new? Again, they come out of a culture of Silicon Valley garages. This is the sort of thing that Fred Turner talks about. And a culture that's really been thinking hard about the virtue added of sharing things in common. We're talking about Palo Alto in the 1970s and early 1980s, in which Fred Turner has mapped all of the co-ops, all of the collective living institutions that you walk by on your way from one garage that's making personal computers to another. It turns out that most of these amazing new ideas about infrastructure systems are coming from parts of our society that really valued sharing a lot of things in common. And that made it easy for not just Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, but for 10,000 engineers of their generation to have a side project where they were tinkering. And what Adam Smith insisted and what a lot of canny economists have insisted since then is that it's that culture of broadcast experimentation. It's not the huge one million fold reward at the end of it. It's the access to experimentation. It's the access to the market when you're broke that prompts entrepreneurs to start tinkering. So if you believe that, that raises a lot of really difficult questions about the current world of these fascinating connectors. 
nobody's talking about nationalizing Airbnb. Nobody's been talking about nationalizing eBay. And I'm not saying that we should nationalize them, but I'm really curious about the experiments in, say, local town-owned Wi-Fi, what that's meant for the entrepreneurship and the culture in general in the handful of towns in North America where the internet is treated like a public utility. It's like the water. It's something that everybody has a right to. We should be on the lookout for studies of how those towns that treat the internet like a public utility have fared in this moment of quarantine when it's such a struggle for so many families to get connected to remote schooling, right? You treat it like a public utility, you're prepared for a lot of contingencies that you wouldn't be otherwise. So you're talking about like a Silicon Valley culture, which understood this idea of tinkering and open access and communal living and, and all of that. But at the same time, like that exact same culture had this very deep libertarian streak and anti-authoritarian, anti-state orientation. How do you think about that? Because I think that the idea that the computing culture created these increasing returns type goods or these new technologies that created public sort of value seems to be in tension with the fact that they, despite whatever kind of cultural window dressing they may have had, they were actually quite a capitalist libertarian kind of culture, even going back to the 70s, you know, what do you think about that? Yeah, so that's, I mean, this is where the metaphor of the, the sidewalk becomes super useful. Yeah. Just because we have sidewalks, it doesn't mean that we're Soviet Russia, right? It doesn't mean that we're Maoist China. We're not abolishing property or seizing other people's houses. We have sidewalks. We take them for granted. We theorize them less than we should. We talk about the things that we have in common maybe less than we should. But we still have private houses all around the sidewalk. These things can exist cheek by jowl in forms of communism. And I would say that, I, you know, I think, Matt, we've been intellectually harmed as a culture by the legacy of the Cold War. And what I mean by that is that in a world in which socialism counts in, if you look at the sentiment dictionary that people who do text mining use to count sentiments like love is a positive emotion and hate is a negative emotion, that sentiment dictionary counts socialism as a marker of fear or disgust. So that attitude towards socialism or anything in common is a relic of the Cold War in which everything is black and white. You're America or you're Russia. And actually, if you look at the deep history of America, if you just look at how Silicon Valley worked, if you look at the stapler circulating in the office building, or you look at the history of the sidewalk, the current use of the sidewalk, it's not that simple. We need externalities. We believe in externalities. We don't have a free and open conversation about how or when something should become a commons. So when is it that the internet should work like a public utility? When is it that Airbnb has finished being a private reserve and should enter back into something that's maintained by the community? You know, those are really important questions. And they have to do with what you think the role of the government is, or what the role of experts is. Do you need expert entrepreneurs out there to make more Airbnbs or Airbnb alternatives? Do you want a world of Airbnb alternatives? Do you need one monopoly? If there is one monopoly, could it be run more efficiently by the state? Those are all open questions, unless you're living in a world where we're terrified of communism, where communism represents the greatest opposition possible to our identity. 
Yeah, I love the way you put that, that we were harmed by the legacy of the Cold War. It really does seem to me that this is something that we're just beginning to kind of crawl out of. So you you mentioned this rich tradition of thinkers that were not stuck in that dichotomy, like George and Keynes and others. How have we lost that thread? So I'm telling you these stories about 18th century sidewalks, and that's based on work that I did 15 years ago. Yeah. So for the last 10 years, I've been thinking a lot about Henry George and thinking a lot about infrastructure in the 20th century, thinking a lot about the cultures of experimentation that the internet grew out of, and not just the experimentation in Silicon Valley, but you know, the kinds of worker-owned co-ops and experiments with appropriate technology and cheap solar panels and cheap devices for getting water out of the ground that were circulating in places like India in the 1960s and 70s. I mean, it seemed to a lot of people, you read Small is Beautiful, this treatise on the future of technology that's published in, I think, 1968 by E.F. Schumacher, which is still gospel to a lot of engineers, right? And a lot of engineers in Silicon Valley love this book. And what it says to them is that we're, we're going to go to a culture of innovation in which the startup cost of your farm is nil and the startup cost of your company is nil and everybody will become an entrepreneur. And we can design that and we will design that by making small scale, cheap technology that's affordable to ordinary people. There's a very real connection between that publication of that book and the personal computer and the cell phone. This right. culture of it has to be cheap enough and it has to give everybody access. It's an ideal of democratization of the economy through technology. So I think we were living in a culture that really privileged that point of view from the 1930s to the 19, early 1970s. Something very strange happens around 1974. In 1974, there are some moves made on the international scene, the level of the World Bank, which start to shut down the initiatives at the United Nations that have been supporting meetings to talk about appropriate technology and worker-owned cooperatives in India and in Africa. So there were bureaucrats who were interested in building the future technology for the small farmer. And they were interested in building the future technology for the entrepreneur in India. And they're essentially defunded. And the message that comes down is that they're defunded because we love American capitalism and we hate communism. So, okay, wait, you hate communism? What kind of communism do you hate? Right. You hate what's a worker cooperative? It's 200 small farmers who share a cow or a dairy facility. You all have cows, they share a dairy facility, and then they lower costs. That's not Soviet Russia. That's not the man telling you what you can and can't buy. That's a group of entrepreneurs working together. So the fight against communism wasn't characterized by that kind of agitation against shared technology or shared bureaucracy or shared infrastructure or sharing blueprints until around 1974. And then the last throes of the Cold War entered this very strange phase in which an American-run World Bank is moving in tandem with U.S.-owned multinational corporations. And you can see that in the case of agriculture because there's this move away from worker cooperatives towards industrial agriculture, which was backed all the way by McNamara and the World Bank in a way that resonates with things that are going on at the Ford Foundation. They're American multinationals. Again, not little American entrepreneurs, but like the Ford and John and dear corporations are benefiting from this. They sell tractors, they sell pesticides, they sell to the richest people in India, and the smallest farmers can just go away. 
So what you have at that moment is an aggressive kind of capitalism for the richest. Capitalism for the richest Americans, the richest multinationals, coming and steamrolling over a very fertile participatory culture of small-scale technology and infrastructure for ordinary people to share information and get involved. And we did that. I mean, that was an American move that crushes a lot of initiatives around the world. I mean, it doesn't entirely crush them either. They, they manage to survive, which is a great thing about being small and cheap. You survive even having the bureaucracy taken away. But the organs of the United Nations that have been doing all of this work to facilitate these exchanges are incapacitated. They're cut off at the knees. Okay, so that, that happens and they kind of struggle on. It's interesting to look historically. 10 years, 20 years later, Google shows up in these communities that had cooperatives 30 years beforehand. You know, Google says, we're bringing small-scale technology. We're bringing peer-to-peer -peer participatory action. And everybody says, okay, that's great. And you see the Google and Society initiatives. And what do they do? They spend money for like a month, a year. They make a little film about it and then they disappear. So there's no maintenance. Mm -hmm. There's no sustained effort at the infrastructure. Unless you're already so lucky as to be served by Google, you know, you're already affluent enough to be one of the people who is served directly by them. There's nobody who's really in a sustained, maintained way working for the promotion of cheap, available infrastructure. You can tell the story of one laptop per child and how that collapses. But again, it's kind of the same story. It's a story about insufficient investment. Private investor wants to come in, pours money into it. There's a lot of smart design, but it's just one design. A private actor can't do the same sustained work to distribute opportunity as a state, a permanent bureaucracy that has a permanent maintenance budget. And so there's a lot of magical thinking about the free market that happens in these circles. You know, not that the market is wrong, but magical thinking about the free market. If I just create one laptop per child, if I just create the golden instrument and redistribute it, then soon enough people in Africa will be using this and they'll be entrepreneurs and Africa will be saved, saved from tyranny. Right. And as we see, that didn't happen. I mean, it seems like essentially people tried to construct an oppositional intellectual narrative against communism and in so doing sort of lost this much more nuanced sense of oscillation between public and private interests and the way that those two things need to be sort of interleaved, right? Yeah. I mean, you can think about it in a, not to get all esoteric, but you can think about it in a, a spiritual or a psychological way. Jung says, in the winter, the tree puts its energy into the ground. In the spring, the tree puts its energy into its leaves. So we as human beings, we need solitude. We need a moment to retreat into ourselves. And then we have other opportunities to go out and socialize. There are introverts and extroverts, but everybody's a little bit of an ambivert. Everybody likes a little bit of back and forth. And our economy probably needs that back and forth as well. It's interesting to me to think about the forms of power that seem to arise when you do have private interests or private ownership in control 
of these sort of more infrastructural type goods. So I think that, you know, one example of this that people are talking about a lot lately is the control over the speech environment or the informational environment that companies like Google and Facebook have now. I don't know if you saw that documentary, The Social Dilemma. It puts a a fine point on the way that the private management of this public space of conversation and information exchange has distorted that space of information exchange. And, you know, I wonder if you have thoughts about that, about this question of speech and information that we're now dealing with. Or another manifestation of this is that because we have private parties now controlling the spaces in which we speak to each other, we now find ourselves in this position where we're asking those parties to regulate the speech, right? We want now Twitter and Facebook to curate the speech on their platform, which is to say to exercise a kind of a power that we have never really asked private parties to exercise before. Yeah, it's a tricky subject. I mean, what the history of infrastructure gets us there is useful and maybe not the entire story. But historically, when states have run infrastructure, the requirement for infrastructure, actually, whether it's public or private, even if it's a private railroad, states have placed lots of restrictions on the railroad. They have to be neutral. Right. So you can't say you're Jewish, you can't use my railroad. You're African-American, you can't sleep in my hotel. That's forbidden in most places and most of the regime of modern infrastructure. And when it's not, that's a super interesting story. So it has to be neutral. It has to be accessible to everyone, has to be maintained, and it has to take you where you want to go. Right. The infrastructure of newspapers is the post office. So the post office is required to deliver the newspaper to everybody. So now you have a situation where Facebook is both the newspaper and the post office. And it's delivering some things to some people and some things to some other people. And it's not transparent at all. And one of the great things about democratic governments and bureaucracies, they're not always fully transparent, but they're always means of getting that transparent information and then debating it in a public setting. And when there's a crisis, then it's the duty of the legislators to bring that into public and to have a discussion about it. But there's no mechanism to do that with Facebook. Right. You know, why did my friend's email get through and mine didn't? Why did my story disappear? You aren't allowed to trace it. You don't have information about it. It's not transparent. And so you have no idea how neutral or not it is. And the fear is that those levers are being bought and sold. And, you know, we're right to be concerned about that because that historically, if you have the post office being bought and sold, I'll deliver some mail, but not yours. That's been one of the levers that despots pull. That starts to look like a tyranny and like a government you don't want to live under. Right. So the way I think about this is Ronald Dworkin, you know, and others have put forward a a fairly concise definition of the sort of criteria of legitimate liberal government, right? And the way Dworkin puts it is that a liberal government, its use of coercive power has to be justified on a couple different grounds. One, the government's exertion of power needs to take the interests of all of its constituents as equally valuable, equally important, right? And it has to be exercised in a way that is neutral between different conceptions of the good. So these are like criteria of equal concern and neutrality with which coercive government power in a liberal conception of legitimacy needs to be exercised. But what's going on now is we find ourselves in a position where we want certain kinds of private power to be exercised with precisely that kind of legitimacy or that kind of justification, right? So does that suggest that the power that private parties have accrued has taken on the same character as governmental power? 
Well, it's not as if there are no precedents for the provider of services acting like a mini government. In a sense, that happens all the time. Your landlord. Your landlord is someone who sets the rent that you pay them. But on the other hand, they're regulated. So Facebook is acting like a government, but they're not regulated. So I think, you know, this is another one of those opportunities where we need to think about the ways in which we've been willing to regulate in the past. There have been historically rent control laws, laws about how much the rent can go up every year or every quarter, standards, building standards. Can you house someone in a building that's collapsing? Can you house someone in a building with no heat or no running water? And we say no for the common good, you know, because we don't want people to get sick and if Spanish flu is going around, people have to be able to wash their hands. So we've given ourselves permission in the past in a capitalist society to regulate micro-governments in this way. And now we have a meso-government, all these meso-governments like Google and Facebook. And I think transparency is helpful. Now, where I take a lot of hope is that I'm not sure how to regulate private speech in a public realm. And I think there's some really tricky issues there, which will be delicious to lawyers who want to work out what public and private really mean. But my concern is really the infrastructure and what, what these historical allegories can offer us. And what I get excited about is not so much Google and Facebook, which I see is like, you know, they're kind of dinosaurs. They're kind of a dead end. They're like the railway just before the railway collapsed. Like they're doing a lot of harm. They're getting really rich by consolidating money. It's not clear that they're making so many other people money. I mean, they're influencers, but what is that? Is that vaudeville? I get excited about the other forms of social infrastructure that are emerging right now to deal with questions of transparency. So Matt, we've talked about, for example, the GovZero movement in Taiwan, which began sharing government data with the public. And they began by replicating government web pages in a place where citizens could find them. And then they wound up participating in this global movement of citizen assemblies, which are gathering sometimes in person and sometimes online, where citizens are asked to consider information about some charged moral issue, for instance, abortion, for themselves, and then to write legislation, which is then passed in the legislature. So those assemblies are really interesting to me because in a sense, they are an infrastructure, especially if it's a web page that's curated to help you see what is it that the majority of citizens agree about, not what do they dissent or what's the word cloud of the most frequent word, but what are the statements that most citizens would agree about? And then how can we refine that agreement to pass legislation together? Once you start using infrastructures of those kinds, you start pulling apart another monopoly that's an effective monopoly in our society that's another one of these blind spots. And that monopoly is the monopoly of representative legislators. So our elected representatives in our democracy because our democracy dates from the 18th century, and it was really hard to get across the country on a horse, we have a system of democracy where we trust people, and we are forced to trust people who in many ways we barely know, who are thought to be loosely incentivized on the basis of their career and reputation to work for the common good. And yet, that's probably the least participatory format for passing laws that we could come up with. We could think about a direct democracy where everybody votes, but it's way more participatory if we start exploring these other realms of what happens when you have Google Docs or you have an intelligent AI that says these are all of the sentences that people have in common, all of their values that they seem to have in common. Let's work on that. Write some legislative statements. That kind of an infrastructure allows you not only a direct democracy, but a creative of evolving democracy that could actually flow out of the will and the consensus of many people. 
Do you think that participation in democracy needs to be conscious? You know, so for example, if you have something like what you just described, if we gather information about people's actual behavior, right, and then discern from that information what they want, do you think that there's a gap between that and sort of conscious participation in democracy? Does my expression of preference through a democratic process need to be willful in order to be properly democratic? So in the literature on participation, and there's a huge literature on participation yeah. in the social sciences. Chris Kelty just wrote a book about this called The Participant. There were a lot of exercises earlier in the 20th century with what was then called participation that were not really about devolving authority to people. So for example, there's a famous experiment at the end of the 1940s at a pajama factory where there are women workers and they invite some of the women workers to meet together and tell management how things could be more efficient. And it turns out that if you ask workers what they think, whether or not you then act on it, the workers work better. So this was reported and this becomes the seed of the literature of modern human resource management. But through and through that mm -hmm. literature, it's abundantly clear that the people who are thinking about participation aren't interested in actually giving workers control over their workplace or actually taking the workers' ideas. They are just interested in rituals, rituals of socialization, where people are asked about how they're doing and they're asked about what could be better. And that seems to improve their willingness to work. So it's not the same as inclusion. Right. And it might be the same as co-optation. Because then you're taking the workers' ideas and you're not compensating them if you take their ideas or you're just making them feel better. Right. So that might be somewhere in between co-optation and therapy. But that's not where the story ends. I mean, there were also experiments in the 20th century that included things like starting up worker-owned cooperative. So there you've got a complete devolution of control. The people who are working on designing windows are also the people who are directly profiting from that. And that turns out that that makes a pretty resilient company in a lot of places. So when we start moving towards citizen assemblies, we're getting back in touch with the more radical of the participatory traditions, not the ones that are about co-optation, just showing up and feeling better, but the ones that are about actually using the wisdom of the crowd, actually discerning what values democracy has in common. You could think about a lot of really retrograde reasons why you wouldn't want to listen to that. But in effect, we have a democratic system that's trying to get at something like a consensus about the common good. We're just doing it in an excessively slow fashion, you know, which is appropriate to the 18th century when, when people have to get back and forth between Washington and Virginia by horseback. Maybe not so appropriate to an age in which we can just pull not all Americans, but a huge sample of Americans on any given day via a text message. So what should we do with that? I find the, these experiments in democracy to be really instructive and really, I would say, hopeful. Hopeful about the possibility of resolving some of these issues about transparency or public will or where you get the will to solve a big problem like economic inequality or homelessness or climate change. Where does that will come from? Well, perhaps it could be solved in the form of a citizen assembly in which there's an opportunity for public will to emerge and to evolve in the face of new facts in a way that it simply doesn't seem to be possible in this world of echo chambers, right. which is maintained by you know this private, non-transparent infrastructure that wasn't a Facebook, that it wasn't built to serve all parties in the way that the post office did. You know, In a sense, we've taken a step backwards towards the world of tiny villages where we hate our neighbor village and we have no idea what they're like because we never talked to them. 
That's the world of echo chambers. It's like the medieval village where serfs aren't even allowed to travel without papers. Yeah. So I'm also really attracted to this vision of expanding democratic participation through creating better institutions. So like one thing that's inspired by GovZero is, you know, what if private citizens could do the jobs of, let's say, judges better than judges? You know, there's a public docket which contains all of the information that the judge is using to make a decision in a case. Well, you know, what if there were people out there who could set up sort of a shadow court to do that themselves and thereby keep the judge honest, you know, put a little bit of pressure on the judge to make sure that the judge does at least as careful of a job as, as whatever shadow institution is out there. But I guess, you know, what do you think is the, you know, practically speaking is, is the way that we need to do this? I mean, do we need to build new kind of institutions in parallel to the ones that we already have and encourage people to to deliberate on a smaller scale within them and kind of roll that up to a better understanding of what the government's obligations to the public are or what? I mean, I mean how do you envision building out this vision of democracy? Well, first things first. I mean, in this country, we've got a Republican Party, which has increasingly defined itself over the last four years as being the party of voter suppression. So then you're going backwards even further. And it can do this, you know, this is allowed because there are relics of former moments of voter suppression in American history, which are aggregated together in the form of the restrictions on the register of voters. So most European nations don't have a registry of voters. You don't have to register to vote. You have a government-issued ID, and at whatever time you get the government-issued ID, you are effectively registered. So you just have to show up with that ID, and that's it. And when you think about what that means for a culture, well, they have higher voter turnouts as a result, so that's one thing. You have more broadcast participation. So if you think participation is a good thing, that's a really important thing. You also think about all of the labor. I've been going around with my daughter getting out the vote for this last season. And you think about a culture in which professors and school teachers and other dedicated members of society are using the bulk of their powers in the lead up to an election, just getting out the vote, just getting people registered, not even talking to them in a town hall, engaging them about the issues and not, right. you know, we're not on the phone persuading people to vote for one candidate or leading them through deep conversations about what really matters. I mean, I'm a professor, for goodness sake, I do this for a living. I talk to 18-year-olds about their basic values and coach them on how they might think about them in a more rigorous way. And I would love to do that for my community, but we don't really have a venue. And there have been, of course, experiments in democracy and deliberation, like this conference that was held outside Dallas that brought together a bunch of subjects to deliberate and to talk to people from across the aisle. And it turns out that if they do that once, then they're better educated and they've read arguments more carefully a year later. So I think this is a really crucial moment in which we can kind of just shrug our shoulders and say, infrastructure exists. The sidewalk is fine. Facebook is fine. It's fine how it exists. Or we can start saying, look, the sidewalk didn't come from nowhere. And we did, if we didn't have a sidewalk, it would be a different world. So what are the choices right now? You know, how do we build a permanent zone for deliberation and democracy and maintain it? Should that be a public utility supported by taxation? How do we build an evolving forum for democracy and citizen assemblies that write our legislation? And how do we make that something that's also maintained, not just as a one-off experiment? So, you know, of course, it has to be an experiment before it's generalized, but it needs to be an experiment that has maintenance and permanence built in. So you want to do it at a small scale, do it in a smallish city like Knoxville. 
Right. Because, I mean, it seems to me that one of the principal obstacles towards affecting that kind of a vision is people just don't have confidence in democratic outcomes, right? People think that our democratic processes are too dysfunctional to adequately manage the kinds of spaces for discourse and the kind of infrastructure that you are talking about, right? And it seems to me, anyway, that step one towards remedying that is to show that democratic processes can work on a smaller scale and then roll those up towards more ambitious governance problems. Yeah, but all of this chatter, it's coming out of a moment of confusion about the world in which we live. Is the United States of America, is it a democracy or is it a capitalist country? Well, it's a democracy. Do we need to experiment with democracy? No. We've been at this experiment for democracy for 200 years. And we have lots of other enormous experiments with democracy to look at. I mean, look at India, where you have 90% voter turnout. It's not that they don't have problems. They've got terrible ethnic strife. But the trajectory of democracy has been to heal those problems. And sometimes privilege chokes it. We live at a moment in which privilege has been choking a lot of aspects of American polity. And so the privilege will tell you that the solution is more privilege. And we need more tax breaks and more power in the hands of the few. I think the solution is more neutral, transparent infrastructure. Does anybody have a problem with the sidewalk? No. Does anybody have a problem with the interstate highway system? Well, you know, the families of the people who were displaced in the 1950s and 1960s, and that was not done in a fair way, right? It landed on the necks of Latinos and African Americans. But aside from that, the great-grandchildren use the highway and are probably glad that it's a highway rather than a toll road, because then they couldn't get to work. So it's not that we need to experiment more. Yeah. We need to talk about those things that are working, and we need to build. We need to build more instances so that the proof is in front of us, you know, more instances of citizenism assemblies. We need a million sidewalks. We need to build a million sidewalks for talking about democracy and for you know, talking about climate change and talking about the food channels and food safety and how medicines get to us. We need, you know, maybe a million infrastructures for all of these things. And we need to collectively start learning and educating ourselves about what a transparent, functional infrastructure that serves all players neutrally, what that looks like. Because that's what all of our success is. Everything you like about capitalism, everything you like about democracy, that's what it's built on. So it does seem to me, though, that some people don't, you know, nobody has a problem with the sidewalk, but plenty of people have a problem with the democratic polity regulating or controlling the sidewalk, right? And so, I mean, in this case, the sidewalk being, let's say, Facebook or whatever, right? I think, I mean, so what I'm trying to say is that I think a lot of people do, and I'm not counting myself among them necessarily, but plenty of people are worried about the government exerting power over these kinds of entities, right? Basically because they don't think that one reason might be just the protection of privilege or something like that, right? Another reason might be that they don't, they don't have enough confidence in democratic processes that they're willing to accept the result of it. Does that make sense? And so, that, so to me, that seems like the confidence problem that we need to work on by demonstrating the efficacy of democratic deliberation. You know? Yeah. But, you know, like the democracy and deliberation people, they've been doing these experiments for 20 years, maybe more, with robust results that they've published about, documented about, that have been the subjects of news stories. 
So it's not like the documentation isn't there. And it's not like the argument for democracy isn't there. Vivid proof of concept is another thing. You know, that means I heard about it and I read about it and that's okay. But when my brother went there and he talks about it all the time, now I can't ignore it. So that means, you know, we've got the proof of concept. We need to scale up. But, you know, the chatter, I think the chatter about the state, it's pernicious. And it's clear to me that it's very recent. So, you know, I'm in my 40s and I grew up in Dallas, Texas, where I currently live, surrounded by Republicans. And I grew up not hearing an ounce of the condemnation of the state that I feel like I hear on a regular basis over the last 10 years. So the sense that I make out of that is that the noises of the Cold War are back. The condemnation, the easy condemnation of anything socialist is bad. I didn't hear that when I was growing up in the 1980s. And Britain was a socialist country and Britain was our ally. So socialism was, you know, the, the nice middle way. It's not communism. It's not the problem. And the New Deal was taught in my public high school in a red state as you know, right. the model the model of what governments could do for people, something that where a rising tide had raised all boats for a vast portion of the American people by doing relatively simple and cheap things like planting poplars to stop the dust bowl from blowing away the topsoil of the middle of the country. So it's not as if people, you know, you hear news commentators talking as if American history is one long history of red states hating on the government. And that's simply not true. That sort of rhetoric started to emerge at the end of the 1970s, by the beginning of the 1980s, in tiny, tiny quarters Mm -hmm. here and there. And it's been drummed up over the last decade, especially, as a way of fighting against the possibility of any effort to regulate the internet, the major companies of the internet, but also for any opportunity to regulate commerce in general. And over that same time period, we've seen the decline of public schools. We've seen the continuing underfunding, under maintenance of U.S. infrastructure with boards of engineers regularly writing reports saying all of the dams are going to collapse. Lots of cities are in their way. We don't have the infrastructure to hold Houston and New Orleans and all of our coastal cities against climate change. And then there's climate change. You know, we we have the the writing on the wall about a major catastrophe that's heading our way. And we're dismantling NOAA. We're dismantling the EPA. So we are living. I think you have to see this. If you're a person who thinks at all about history, think you're on the right, you think you're on the left. But if you think at all about American history, you have to see this. We are in a moment of a crisis of collaboration. And that is absolutely desperate because we're talking nonsense about socialism and about communism. To hear people talk on the media about their hatred of the state and of governments, you would think that they hated the sidewalk. They don't hate the sidewalk. They started attacking the the post office, which is nonsense. That's one of the oldest institutions of democracy. We don't need to put the post office on trial. That's nonsense. We're talking like crazy people. And I think we're talking at crazy people because the stakes look so high. And people are so nervous. They're so nervous about all of these externalities that we can't control, like the weather, or that we can only control by taking a deeper dive into a shared infrastructure system and shared governance. And we don't have a lot of clear thinkers in the public realm or in the academy who have been talking about shared infrastructure systems that could write communities and allow them to make decisions together and reach bigger and bolder achievements of collaboration. And that's desperately what we need to deal with 
the climate saga, to regulate carbon and secure our cities. We need a lot of collaboration and a lot of faith in each other. But the beautiful side of this is that we're also in this incredibly fertile, creative moment of technology in which we've seen the emergence of these beautiful infrastructure systems around us that allow us to rent cars and rent houses. You know, Airbnb is wonderful. We can do all of these things at a distance. We know that if you build an infrastructure, we can collaborate. We just need to do a little bit more of it and start learning from the places like Thailand and Iceland, where people have been leaning into the shared infrastructure for debate and discernment and legislating themselves and building and maintaining these sites of infrastructure where democracy can be reborn. We need that vitally and we need that right now. I love that. We had an interesting exchange recently about the role of the humanities and the way that the humanities have, in a way, taken a very critical stance and shied away, in a sense, from sort of a constructive role in determining the way that these kinds of institutions work. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, so I, I co-authored with David Armitage a book called The History Manifesto, which you can get open access online. We published it open access. In The History Manifesto, we talked about long-term struggles long-term crises, for instance, climate change, economic inequality, and global governance. Big nuts to crack. And are only possible to understand, not through economic theory and not through the philosophical or religious theory of the day, but through vast comparisons of different systems over time, different nations over time, over centuries, ideally. We talked about how the humanities are probably the part of the university that's best suited to make those comparisons. But humanists have been in a crisis, and a crisis that is typified by talking about smaller and smaller time periods and horizons. And we talked about the reasons, the reasons that humanists have been concentrating on smaller and smaller subjects. Just this poet, just the 10 years, just this one little village. They had to do with a dream of perfectionist rigor in the social sciences born of the 1970s. It was very noble in its own way, even though it had the long-term consequence of meaning that debating long-term truths and the direction of society is something that you would find less and less in most history PhD programs today, I think really to the detriment of society. So, you know, we published that book in 2015. And since then, there's been a minor renaissance in books taking a long-term perspective on many of the angles that we suggested. So, for example, Walter Scheidel, the Stanford historian, just published this amazing monograph on the comparative history of inequality in all of time. Scheidel's diagnosis is dark, super dark. I won't give it away. He thinks that this democratic experiment and all of these experiments in participation and infrastructure are just a blip in human society. And we'll give up before we do anything cool. Kind of book you need to like drink with a whiskey in your hand. <laughs> so, but, you know, he's not the only one. So then there's a, the Yale historian Sunil Amrith who writes about 200 years of weather and water in India and where India's water crisis comes from and how to understand this climate-driven droughts, which are, you know, people are really worried about that, devastating the Indian economy and population. People in India are very afraid right now. So he talks about that in the light of 200 years and how much of drought and famine, it was a consequence of the British and the way that the British decimated the institutions of Indian governance in the 19th century with the result of making famines and droughts worse. And so how far can we think about reason to hope? So I found that I found that to be a profoundly useful book. And then there's Jeffrey Parker's Survey of Environmental History. There are all of these environmental historians who are doing like 2,000, 
5,000 years of environmental history and asking really profound questions like how is it that nation states adjust? How do economies and cultures adjust to an environmental crisis in which people are being displaced? And, you know, because we've had this in the human past, a series of volcanoes goes off at the wrong time and the harvest fails for three years running around the globe. And so some countries double down on individualism and some countries double down on welfare. Guess who does better? It's the countries who double down on welfare. How do you know this? Because Jeffrey Parker was comparing huge numbers of societies over huge numbers of time. And he has better climate data than anybody's ever had. The climate data that we have now because people have been scraping pollen out of mud and they've been looking at ice cores. And we've got all of this really rich data about like harvest failure and what people were eating and who starved that we never had before. So we've got big data. So they're trying to understand, you know, when they give you this thesis on welfare, it's not a pipe dream. It's not a utopian. Like, go and read the book. There's a lot of data. So humanists are coming back into it. They're wrestling with questions of infrastructure, of communality, of how we support each other, of whether we're destined to destroy democracy and for all resources to end up in the hands of a micro-elite. They're asking these questions. They're really looking at it carefully. And I take a lot of a lot of delight in seeing that conversation happen. I think we'll see more of it. I think there's no book. I wouldn't tell you to read one book. I would tell you to read at least those three and maybe 10 of the books that have been written about those topics. The way that you phrased the question a little earlier, you said, are the humanities a form of infrastructure? So that's not my phrase. That's a phrase that you and I heard from our friend Stephanie Dick. And Stephanie Dick is another person who thinks about the history of technology and the history of infrastructure in beautiful and intricate ways. And I didn't get the chance to ask her exactly what she meant by that phrase. But as I chew on it, what I think is that the humanities are a form of infrastructure in that they are accessible to everyone. Any one of you can get these books and they're shared, they're maintained by experts, you know, who frequently have tenure at our great universities. Your tenure and the university is one of these great 19th century forms of society that didn't exist before, certainly didn't exist at the scale that we have it now. And it exists to solve human problems so that there's some expert around who you can call if you say, you know, I'm in PR and I really want to know how do people survive climate crises? Well, there's a guy who's been studying that, and thank goodness. So those sorts of roles, it's actually not just the humanities, you know, also the agricultural engineers and the civil engineers in the university. When we started planting a university for every state or 10 universities for every state, the idea was that we would take the best of human knowledge wherever it was. It might have been in the army, it might have been working for the king, and we would generalize and make it accessible. So again, another infrastructure so that every farmer's son can go and learn about the most efficient way to raise chicks or the most efficient way to build a culvert so that your farm doesn't flood. All of us are going to get richer. So that's definitely a form of investment. And in the most idealistic version of that dream, it's not just the agrarian engineer and the civil engineer and the economist. It's also the medieval historian and the theologian and the professor of creative writing and the poet and the painter, so that the son and daughter of every construction worker can go and have a moment talking to these individuals where they feel, they taste something about some bigger human experience, and they start to look at their family and say, oh, my mother worked every day caring for the family. She's paid a third of the wages of my father. Is that the best we can do in society? 
oh, I grew up in a family that didn't vote. What is this thing called democracy? So if the humanities are an infrastructure, they're an infrastructure that's about raising the collective bar about how we have these other conversations. And also auditing the way these other conversations have worked. This democracy thing, how has that been working out for the great-grandchildren of slaves? Have they enjoyed that democracy? So we are the auditing arm. We are the CPAs of your soul and your nation's soul. I mean, it's also the vocabulary with which democratic deliberation has to happen, right? Like if we want to communicate with our fellow citizens about where to build the railroad or whether to build the railroad or how to regulate speech or, or whatever it may be, we've got to ask questions about our values, right? Yeah. So in order for people to make rich decisions about society, they need to be dealing with the kinds of questions that humanists are, are helping them deal with. Does that map onto your worldview at all or no? Oh, it does. Absolutely. You know, the caricature of the worthless humanities degree when when I was in college was underwater basket weaving. And it's so relevant and it's so microcosmic. And why did we just spend that money? So today, when I hear Saturday Night Live or some, you know, some comic making fun of the humanities, it's different. It's channeled from a different place. It's, you know, I sent my daughter to college and she came back with Antifa views. You know, she's all about rights for indigenous people. Well, those are two different things, right? Underwater basket weaving, A, doesn't exist as a major. That's why it's funny. And it's not about the shape of justice. You send your daughter off and she studies the indigenous Americans who were massacred in order to make room for the railways. And you have a richer understanding of the costs at which were sacrificed to make enormous economic fortunes in American history. And that offers you a platform for casting a more critical eye on the enormous fortunes of a Zuckerberg. It offers you a way to look around yourself and say, is this really the only way that this can happen? You know, could I incentivize more entrepreneurial activity if we had a cooperative or if we had free education or if we had some other system that isn't the winner gets all? Capitalism flows horizontally. Is that a thing? Adam Smith's idea, would that be okay? You want your daughter to ask those questions. You want your son to ask those questions. And you're absolutely right that those are the questions that get raised when we're in a deliberative democracy. They don't get raised otherwise. Right. You know, the the devaluing of humanities is basically predicated upon the idea that it's non-humanity subjects, right? It's technical subjects that allow you to make money, right? Or that allow you to be useful to a company or something like that, right? The way that I think about it is that the non-humanity subjects, the technical subjects, the quote unquote, you know, useful disciplines are useful to enhancing the efficacy of of a factory or of a, you know, of a decreasing returns process. Whereas the humanities are, are asking the kinds of questions that we need to ask in order to enhance the increasing returns processes, the infrastructure, right? To build better institutions that throw off value for the entire rest of society, like education. Yeah, that's right, Matt. And I'll give you a concrete example. I have a friend who is an executive in charge of data analytics for Netflix. Well, in the humanities, there's a frontier field called text mining. And what text mining does is that it uses some code, it uses AI and things that are built over in computer science. And then it it asks humanistic questions, like how were men and women talked about differently in these screenplays? And is that different than it looked 10 years ago? where they talked about differently before and after Trump? And then how are African-Americans talked about? How are Latinos talked about? Are they exhibited in these screenplays as showing different feelings? 
And then what does that do to viewers? Like if I show these screenplays to a Latina viewer, is she just going to turn it off? Okay, so if you're Netflix, if you're Amazon Prime, do you want to know when the Latina is going to stop viewing? Yes, because that's the only thing you're selling, right? You're not selling pajamas, you're selling screenplays. <laughs> if the Latina stops watching, you're dead. Right. Now, do computer science majors have the skills to do that kind of analysis? Well, absolutely, they've got the skills to count the words, but do they know what the words mean? And they know, Do they know how to ask all of those categories about change over time, change over place, how we talk about objects versus how we talk about feelings, what it is that triggers people? No, they don't. And it's very hard to teach them. So I teach coding and I teach text mining. And there's a learning curve for the humanist who learns to code. They take it up pretty quickly. There's another learning curve for the computer science major who hasn't had a single class in literature or art or psychology who gets thrown into all of these questions. And they aren't used to writing essays. They aren't used to thinking about these categories. Like if you tell them just what to code, they can do it and they learn quickly. But if you try to teach them how to think, it takes a while. It takes more than my class. And so we're looking at a situation in Silicon Valley. And I've had this conversation with people at Facebook and Amazon and, and Netflix we're looking at a situation where the people who really understand the data analytics often are looking at the data and saying, I need a humanist in here. But they can't convince their executive to hire the humanist who can code because the executives have drunk the Kool-Aid that says the only useful people have engineering degrees. Let's hire more engineers. Let's hire more neuroscientists. Right. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. It's irrational. The market isn't driving it. The market won't drive that kind of thing, right? Because what the, the humanists are asking themselves questions that aren't restricted to what's good for the company, right? They're asking themselves questions about what's good for the society at large. And that's not exactly the question that the executive is asking him or herself if they're only serving their shareholders, right? Well, there's a room in between, right? There's always a room where those questions meet. Sure. In the conversation about, you know, the Netflix thing, you know, you want me to code for Netflix. I can give you humanist code that can serve the shareholders better than the CS majors code. No doubt. But the training and the way the humanities professors talk about it, I mean, really, it's just that the humanities professors aren't incentivized to get in front of the CEOs and put their foot in the door. The engineering professors spend half their time talking to the CEOs about hire my kid, hire my kid, hire my kid. And that's just a difference of culture. Because the humanities professor has always thought of themselves as setting apart from society, I'm going to step back and have a cup of tea and think about this whole situation. It doesn't mean that they're incapable of telling you anything that's market-driven or extremely useful or extremely functional about how to improve your work right now. It, especially in a world where you have cultural industries like Netflix, whose entire profit model is selling stories. The humanist is the only person who can crack that nut. And it's not because they're a better person. It's because right. they understand stories. They don't study stories in the computer science department. It's just that, you know, it's harder to see because of how we've designed our universities. Well, I think we've got our work cut out for us. And Joe's was a fantastic conversation. I'm, I'm really, really grateful that you took the time. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. I hope you learned as much as I did from that. 
Joe has a really elegant way of foregrounding infrastructure as a political issue, and I encourage you to read her books and essays to gain more from her very deep understanding. It strikes me that we have spent quite a few decades forgetting about the importance of infrastructure, or even forgetting the difference between infrastructure and private property. And in a way, overlooking infrastructure is exactly the same thing as overlooking democracy. Because unlike private property, we need to make shared decisions about infrastructure. So if you don't see its importance, if you don't see the ways that we all depend on common inputs to our well-being, then you don't see the point of democracy. As the world gets more interconnected, we really can't afford to remain confused about this. Thanks so much to Joe. And a big thanks to Jennifer Morone and Leon Erickson, the rest of the team at Radical Exchange Foundation. And thanks for listening.